This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Equate stillness to a night without wind. Equate darkness to water without a current. I'll bring you into this night boat. Sit here by its stern. This boat, we may share it, though dangerous. From the poem All This Space Between You and Me, written by me, K.B. Marie. And this is the true story of who killed my mother. In the days, weeks, months, After the revelation about my mother's devastating abuse, I spend a lot of time thinking about my grandmother. I try to reconcile the woman I knew as a child with the woman who was my mother's complicit oppressor, a co-captor. Even my darkest memories can't bridge this gap, like the time she sent me and my cousin into the yard to find our own switches so she could whip us in the living room floor while we were braced on our hands and knees. For what offense, I don't recall. This is as good an argument as any, for the idea that just because someone isn't cruel to you doesn't mean they aren't breaking someone else behind closed doors. And this is not an isolated event. According to the CDC, one out of every 13 boys and one out of every four girls is sexually abused before they reach 18. Think on that the next time you walk your child, grandchild, niece or nephew into their classroom, look out over the sea of 25 heads, and ask yourself which four of these children are being raped. Anytime I make such considerations myself, I immediately begin my search for the why and the how. As in, why didn't Nana leave her pedophile of a husband? Why didn't she just take the children and go, get the hell out of there? As in, how could she? How could she stand by and let her daughter be hurt like that? And in this deep dive of research, it doesn't take long for me to find possibilities, or rather, a confluence of obstacles that might have kept my grandmother firmly in her place. Just like it was important to contextualize my mother in order to understand her poor mental health, I suspected it was important to contextualize my grandmother in order to clarify her complicity. My grandmother was born in 1935. That means that when my mother was born in 1963, my grandmother was only 28 years old and now married to her second husband. She would have been just about my age when her husband began raping her child. So it's easy for me to say she should have left him. She should have packed up the kids and gotten the hell out of there. I must ask myself how could she have done it? By what means? Though the 60s and 70s were full of cultural change for women, there were still significant setbacks. Women were still largely expected to be wives and homemakers above all. This subservience, 
was compounded undoubtedly by my grandmother's Christian faith, which emphasizes wives as subordinates to their husband's will. Knowing what I know about her economic background and class, Nana likely didn't have friends or family that could support her and her three children until she got on her feet. Most of her friends would have had families of their own, with husbands who probably didn't want three more kids underfoot, and her family was as religious as she was. They would have sent her back home to work it out with her husband. So what did that leave her with? A shelter? Homeless shelters around L.A. in 1973, the year my mother's abuse likely began, reserved about a thousand beds for men and thirty for women. And there's no mention of what a woman was to do if she had three children in tow. There was always the option to go it alone, you might think. She could just get out there, get a job, pay her own way. And this is what I thought at first. Yet this is nearly impossible today for a woman making minimum wage and working full-time to support herself and her children. And it was even more impossible in 1973. First of all, there's an issue of earning a wage large enough to feed four mouths. The Equal Pay for Equal Work Act, an attempt to close the significant pay gap between men and women, wasn't even passed until 63. And even after, it went largely unenforced until its expansion in the 70s. This meant that the jobs that women could get were still low-paying jobs. And even if somehow, she did manage to cobble together an income for the four of them, how was she to manage her money? At this time, women couldn't even open their own bank accounts. How was she supposed to secure housing? Apartments require deposits, furnishings, homes require loans, and she certainly couldn't get temporary help from a bank to set any of this up. Well into the 70s, a single, widowed, or divorced woman had to bring a man along when she filed for credit lines or loans at a bank, and married women had to bring their husbands and couldn't make any financial decisions without their co-approval. So her first logical step would have been to secure a divorce. And if she was lucky, a bit of alimony or child support. But that's always a gamble. And what if my grandfather had threatened her? If he could put a gun to my mother's head and force her to perform oral sex, it's not hard to imagine him putting a gun to my grandmother's head, telling her that if she left him, he would kill her, kill their children. And if she did manage to escape into the night, what if he fought her in court? What if he tried to take the children away, calling her a liar, calling her a shrill woman who couldn't be pleased, who'd left one husband and certainly wanted to run away from another? What if he went to court, arguing that he was the better financial option for the children? Because he was. By then, his mechanics business was off the ground, not to mention his lecherous side hustle. And should the judge have granted him protection rather than her and the children, something that still happens to this day? Well, now he would have license to rape his daughter without his meddlesome wife in the way, wouldn't he? All of this says nothing of the conservative community to which my grandmother belonged. How would her church have treated her if they found out what her husband was doing? How would they have treated the children, my mother, as tainted goods, somehow poisoned? Women were still blamed for their marital failings then. But could she have pleaded that she was simply unsafe? That her children were unsafe? and beg mercy of those around her? Maybe not. A 1970s ad for a Michigan bowling alley said, have some fun, beat your wife tonight, offering a good sample of how cavalier the attitude towards spousal abuse was at the time, recognizing that women needed protection from their husbands or children from their fathers, were ideas that weren't yet fully formed. 
Women were expected to suffer silently in their homes well into the 90s, when marital rape finally became a nationwide crime. There were some protections emerging in the 70s, around the time when my grandmother would have discovered these abuses. But it doesn't mean that she fully understood her rights. She was born in the 30s, in a completely different time, with her own history of learned helplessness, conditioning, and trauma stretching behind her. She would have come of age in the 50s, and been one of those long-suffering housewives we now only see on TV. She would have been told to have dinner on the table by five, always look her best, wear those heels while cooking and cleaning, and been so indoctrinated to the idea that anything happening in the home, such as a wayward husband or disobedient children, was her own fault. She wasn't to make a fuss and never shame or humiliate him. And if she was beat for speaking up or taking a stand for her own rights, well, that was her fault too. Whatever happened in the home was to stay in the home. Everyone was to look the other way, whether it be the police or the community. And I think the social stigma, along with the financial hardships, can't be underestimated. Both likely compounded my grandmother's situation. And with all of this said, it's very possible my grandmother did try to leave him. It's noted in the property records that my grandmother divorced my grandfather, only to remarry him years later. I don't have the dates for this divorce and reconciliation, so I can't say if she divorced him because of the abuse or for some other reason, of which I'm sure she had many. But the bottom line is we don't know what my grandmother did or didn't do. I don't know if feeling her husband rise up in bed, knowing his intentions, if she ever reached out in the dark, offered herself as a sacrifice, forgoing her own wishes to spare the little girl in the next room. I don't know if she saw dark looks in his eye and sent my mother outside to play. I don't even know when writing out her will, she was thinking of my mother's future, knowing that an inheritance of any kind might disqualify her from the disability she needed in the future, if every decision might have come from a better place. I don't know because she isn't here to ask. Regardless, I suspect the reasoning was the same. She did whatever she did, for love or for financial security. This is a choice that millions of women are still forced to make every day, deciding which is the lesser of two evils, abuse or starvation, your child or your life, impossible circumstances. And may there come a day when no woman has to make such a choice. Predicaments like my grandmother's and mother's are neither new nor unique. I'm reminded of this as I read The Five by Haley Rubenhold, an exploration of the lives of five women who were killed by Jack the Ripper, the infamous serial killer from Victorian England. The book offers rich descriptions of Victorian life, stripped of the romanticized tales of corsets, bustled dresses, balls and gloved hands, Romantic rides on the train and walks through gas lamplit streets before the electricity was turned on. I like this book because it shows the uglier side of the world too, reminding me that in every country, in every age, there are at least two worlds, the world of the privileged and the world of the poor. And no matter how far we've come, we still love to punish the poor. 
The words Victorian England no doubt conjures the image of carriage rides and taffeta gowns, but this isn't the world that the Ripper's victims occupied. Three of the women, Polly Nichols, Annie Chapman, and Elizabeth Stride, remind me of my mother so much, even though 132 years separates their deaths. I turn page after page thinking, this could have been her. She was just like them. All of these women's lives followed similar patterns. They had difficult, uncertain beginnings, then brief, stable periods that were eventually shattered by their addictions. Once their lives fell apart, their options for recovery were very limited, often humiliating, and far more difficult than maintaining the life of a drunk. For Elizabeth Stride, like my mother, psychosis played a part in her fortune. In the last two years of her life, her behavior changed. She was charged with drunken disorderly on several occasions, which could either be connected to her alcoholism or because of the syphilis she'd contracted 20 years before. She'd begun having seizures and dementia-like symptoms. Sound like anyone we know? Another victim, Polly Nichols, had been born in August just like my mother to a blacksmith father who no doubt also came home with stained hands, just like my mechanic grandfather. Later, when Polly married, it wasn't a great match. He left her, and she was forced to float from man to man in order to restore a bit of financial security to her days. At a time when women's education was far from promised, and occupations depended largely on what opportunities your family had to offer you, my mother had also been required to bounce from partnership to partnership, until 2012, when her last boyfriend Tom had died suddenly and unexpectedly. He'd gone to the hospital one day with stomach pain and never came out again. At that point, my mother had been with Tom for several years, living in Murfreesboro in a small house that I'd visited once, meeting Tom's daughter and grandson. They'd been kind enough and the environment seemed stabilizing, though my mom did drink a bit when I was there, yet she didn't get drunk. She'd seemed content, if not happy, and when he died, she'd called me crying. My mother had a house to return to, albeit a dangerous one. Polly Nichols wasn't so lucky. When she lost a man, and didn't have the shillings for the boarding house, because even rat-infested rooms cost coin, her only remaining options were the workhouse or the street. If you haven't heard of the infamous Victorian workhouse, let me tell you. This horrible, squalid place was used to humiliate the poor and punish them with grueling work requirements. There was forced child labor, malnutrition, beatings and neglect, mixed in with strict rules and punishments. So you can see why a woman might rather catnap on a stoop than be subject to this herself. Of course, this worked in Jack the Ripper's favor, because it's very easy to walk up on a sleeping, possibly drunk woman, left exposed under the veil of night, and slit her throat before she screams. And because these women had drinking problems, they often drank away what little money they did have, moving the boarding room option out of reach. But on the streets, they were vulnerable. On the streets, they lost their lives. Predators like Jack the Ripper profit from such social failings, eyeing the edge of the pack like a hyena for those left unprotected on the fringes of our society. And my mother could have easily ended up on the street, in her life, she'd face similar choices, leave her family and her violent brother behind, and go where? Where was she to go? It was impossible to build a home or financial security on her own when she simply didn't have the mental capacity or support to get an education or hold down a job. So what did that leave her with? Jail, which would compound her mental illness, 
or an asylum that would reinforce her low self-worth and believe that she was the problem, that something is wrong with her and that she would never get better, into rehabs or halfway houses that focus on her symptom of addiction instead of the core affliction of her unresolved trauma, or perhaps into a loveless relationship that offers a roof over her head in exchange for sexual expectations, or of course, there was always the return to her childhood home, the malignant source of all her grief. These were her options. The only difference between my mother and those women who were killed on the street was my mother's decision to endure the violence in exchange for a bed, a room of her own. That's it. Just another hard choice between surviving and dying. Why had my mother accepted her difficult circumstances? Why had my grandmother shared a bed with a monster? Was it a matter of few options, or an inability to accept the hand offered? I think it's both, and that we expect too much of people. We don't acknowledge that it's unresolved trauma that leads to self-medicating techniques like alcoholism or pill abuse. We can't even acknowledge the role of learned helplessness and the way it self-sabotages any attempt at salvation. Learned helplessness wasn't even discovered until 1965. Researcher Martin Seligman used dogs to understand what would happen if they experienced shocks in conjunction with the use of a bell. Animal abuse aside, this is what he did. He placed a dog in a large locked crate and shocked them. They couldn't escape. Then he did this again, but with a crate that had a low fence, low enough that the dog could jump over it to the other side if he wanted to, and escape the shock. But they didn't. Every time the abused dogs heard the bell that signaled a shock was coming, they laid down. Instead of jumping across the low fence and freeing themselves from this torture, they settled in. They accepted what was happening to them, as if it had always happened. That it would always happen. Through these experiments, the dogs learned helplessness. They couldn't even escape the cages when the doors were opened right in front of their eyes. They still lay down. They had to be physically dragged to safety. I have no doubt that women all through the ages, including my grandmother and mother, were conditioned to see themselves as helpless. I know my mother in particular viewed herself through the lens of victimhood in the way she talked about herself, looked at herself in the mirror, treated herself. In fact, she was made a victim long before the fateful night in July 2020 that took her life. She was made to believe this conditioning first, and the helplessness she experienced as a sexually abused child. And again, with more would-be exploiters who no doubt sensed this narrative within her. That is the cycle. Her unresolved trauma caused her psychosis. Her pill and alcohol abuse were her attempts to self-medicate, because she wasn't getting the help she needed to cope any other way. And when offers for escape did come, her learned helplessness kept her from being able to accept it. My mother didn't have a blade drawn across her throat by some shadow-clad man in a Victorian alleyway. This is true. But I can't help but believe the same failings of Victorian England have followed us here to America. My mother had nowhere to go, and that made her the perfect victim. And you might be thinking it's their own fault that they were killed if they hadn't been alcoholics, if they could have found and held steady employment, then their lives wouldn't have been so difficult. But again, this overlooks the tremendous detriment of unresolved trauma. 
My mother was an alcoholic for so long because she was sexually abused. Her sexual abuse caused her depression, her thoughts of suicide, her worthlessness. Because she was abused, she didn't finish school. It wasn't the drinking that did all of that. That's just what came after. And if you're still thinking, no, she should have more control of that, pull herself up by the bootstraps like a good old American, I want you to remember that the next time you tell yourself no more potato chips tonight and say no to that third cookie or second soda. Self-control and self-management isn't so clear-cut, and I think you know that. And it's nearly impossible when what you're up against is far more terrible than a few extra pounds, when what you're stuffing down or drinking isn't just a few calories, but an empty, insatiable darkness threatening to swallow you whole. I don't blame my mother for her problems with alcohol and drugs anymore. I honestly don't know what either of them could have done differently in a system like ours, where poor women must choose between starvation and isolation or unthinkable abuse, where unresolved trauma is something that's supposed to magically go away as we grow up, or that it only happens in another faraway time and place, Victorian England, perhaps. The failings of these women are not the problem. The system is the problem, and we need a lot of things. There's so much to do, and it's easy to feel discouraged. I'm feeling pretty discouraged now, as I close down my laptop and squeeze shut my bleeding eyes. I need a break from this compulsive reading, researching, hunting for answers and clarity, for an understanding that in many other ways I've been denied. I lift my phone and see that there are two missed texts. One from Katie that says, I got a call from the funeral home. She's ready. I'll pick up your mom tomorrow. And another from Shay, who says, Joe called me. I respond to Shay first. What did he say? This episode of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. If you enjoy my storytelling, good news, there is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir, to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.